A Christian warrior, someone who fights in a battle. You see, in our minds, we have the warriors who are a part of our army, who fight for the freedoms that you and I enjoy. I want you to think back, though, to the biblical passage that Brother Larry just read for us. Putting on the Christian armor. You see, the truth is, is that we as Christians are at war with the devil. Our commander, the captain of our salvation, is Jesus the Christ. And the battle is for our souls. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. It is truly a battle for your soul and for mine. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, Paul would write Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were called. You and I are in the fight for our spiritual lives. We are battling for our souls. But you have to be outfitted properly for that battle. You can't go into a battle where you are facing the devil and you're facing spiritual forces, not being properly prepared for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 26, Paul says, I therefore thus run, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. The picture there is of a boxer who's trying to land blows and he says, When I fight, I want to land the blows. I want to be able to win. When you and I fight against the devil, we've got to make sure that we are fighting a battle that you and I can win. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul would say, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Last Sunday evening, we began this series of lessons or a couple of lessons. We talked about preparation for the battle. We talked about all that that involved. We also then began to discuss the panoply of God. That is the Christian armor that you and I are supposed to put on And we looked at the first three of the six items of that Christian armor. Tonight we're going to finish the panoply or the armor of God. And then we're going to talk about how that one prevails in that. The Greek word for whole armor is panoplia. And uh, our English word that we get from it is panoply. And it's found in the song Soldiers of Christ Arise in verse 3 where it talks about the penalty of God. The six terms that refer to the whole armor of God are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, or having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then the last three are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So let's pick up with our lesson tonight with the sword of the Spirit or with the shield of faith. There are two different shields that are used, and there's actually two different terms to refer to them. Maybe you've seen movies of the ones fighting in battles 
during the biblical times. And often you'll see them with a shield about this big. It'll be round. And it'll be held by the left hand. And as the opponent begins to wield his sword, a person would stick up that shield and it would break the force of the shield or the sword that would be wielding against them. On the other hand, there's a long, oblong shield, about two feet wide and four feet tall, and it was used to cover the whole body. In fact, it was usually made from wood and leather. A wood frame would be made and then the leather. These were often used interlocked with their fellow soldiers, and they would be able to advance against the enemy like a wall, and as they would stand shoulder to shoulder and hold them in their left hand and they would move forward. It would be like a wall proceeding. On the other hand, if there was someone who was on the wall shooting arrows or throwing spears or fiery darts, what you would have is a person who would be able to put that shield over their head and to shield themselves from the various arrows and darts and spears. In fact, we sing a song called Higher Ground, and the last part of that song says in verse 3, I want to live above the world, though Satan's darts at me are hurled. So you get the idea of this shield, not the little small round shield, but the long oblong one, and that's the one he's talking about. But he calls it the shield of faith. What does it mean to say it's a shield of faith? Well, faith is used in the Bible in two different ways. It's used, first of all, in an objective sense to refer to the whole system of salvation. For instance, in Jude, verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's that objective body of doctrine that was delivered to us. Or in Galatians 1 and verse 23, speaking about Paul, they were hearing, he who formerly persecuted now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. It's the gospel system. And that's the reason why, for instance, the Bible talks about a great number of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. On the other hand, it can refer to that subjective trust that you and I might have in God. That is, I trust God, I believe God, I have faith in God. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6, he goes on to say, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. But God is often pictured as the shield to man. In fact, I almost most wanted to stop and say, let's just look at the passages where God is pictured as the shield of man. And But I want to just pull out three of them, which I think are real valuable for us to see. In Psalms chapter 5, verse 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. I get the idea that 
soldier carrying that big shield and able to prevent from anything that's coming at him. Psalms 84 verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then Psalms or Proverbs 30 verse 55, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. I think that verse reflects, if you will, the kind of shield of faith that Paul is talking about here. The shield where one puts his trust in God to protect us from the enemy. Now obviously, the fiery darts are to make us afraid. What they would do with the fiery darts is they would take some sort of a projectile that had a a sharp point to it. They would dip it in some kind of pitch or tar and then set it on fire. And these would be used to try to intimidate people because particularly at night, if there was a lot of fire raining down towards you, could intimidate us. Psalms 56 verse 11 says, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or Psalms 118 verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But along with the shield of faith is the helmet of salvation. And in the Roman army that Paul would have certainly been familiar with, they would have a metal helmet, would cover the whole head and would even have guards to come around the sides of the chin. Often they were lined with leather or cloth to be able to uh, give some sort of protection to the head. But there's a reference to this in Isaiah 59 verse 17. And there Isaiah pictures God by saying, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation is on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. The picture there of God stepping up to save man. The devil would like to attack the mind of man, the head of man. He's crafty. He tries to get in our heads. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, Paul said he was jealousy over them with a godly jealousy. He said, I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ. But then verse 3, but I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The devil wants to be able to trick us to get into our head. But third of all, he speaks of the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon that God provides. Everything else is defensive. Everything else is to protect us from what the devil throws at us. But the sword of the Spirit is something that is truly powerful. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He's talking about the great power that the word of God has. And in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, 
John reflects that by saying, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. Notice out of his mouth, the word of God is this powerful means. But it's called the sword of the Spirit. Because the Spirit has provided it. And when you think about it, it cuts. If you go to John 18, verses 8 and 9. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. The word of God that comes from the Spirit will convict men. In Acts 2, verse 37, then when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The message of God is able to cut through the hearts of men and be able to bring them into subjection and into captivity. But now, if you will, let's focus on verses 18 through 20. As you see in this passage, the prevailing that can take place. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth to boldly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, if you'll observe here just a few things that are required to prevail. Number one is asking God to be with us, praying always with all prayer. Always with all prayer. That sounds like 1 Thessalonians 5 or 17, pray without ceasing. That's the continual earnestly in prayer of Luke chapter 18. But he also says being watchful in it. That means that you not only ask God for God's guidance, God's direction, and God's protection, but he says you also watch. When Jesus taught his disciples, when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, you know he went a little bit further from them. And he left those disciples there and he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Then perseverance. Perseverance is keeping on even through difficult times. I'm always amazed at the stories of those men who've served in our country. Those men whose lives were lost and how many of them served until they had no energy left. They gave all. Paul said, for me, because I am an ambassador in chains. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he was in a Roman prison in the city of Rome. And Paul was chained, but the gospel was not chained. Even though he was captive, the gospel still had the privilege. You and I can find ourselves being challenged, but still able to prevail if we continue to pray. When Paul reached the end of his life, 
He explained to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. And not to me only, but to also all those who've loved his appearing. For the Leonard, let us in stand up, stand up for Jesus. The lyrics of that song emphasize the same points that's in this passage. That you and I stand up, but then what you and I have to look forward is that crown of righteousness, which the Lord has promised on that day. In Revelation 17, verse 14 These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. When we come to the end of life's battle, if we are standing with the Lord, we will win. Only you can decide whose side you're going to be on and whether or not you will be on the winning side And Jesus calls upon you to make your choice. He put it very simply in Matthew 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. I think about tonight as we have assembled here to take a portion of God's word and to consider it. As you and I are planning on our future. Will we be standing with the Lord or will we be standing with the devil? That is your choice and that is mine. Paul tells you to arm yourself for the fight. Battle for your soul. But the only way that you can do that is by being a part of the Lord's army. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we'd love to encourage you to come forward, confess your faith in Christ, And be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're a child of God needing to come home, if you will, we're going to sing number 529, Out of My Bondage. Would you stand as we sing?